Welcome, everyone, to Christian Historical Fiction Talk. I'm your host, author Liz Tolsma. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I'm so glad to have you along. We have a wonderful guest coming up, but before we get to her, let's talk just a little bit about those housekeeping measures we need to get out of the way. First of all, make sure you've subscribed to Christian Historical Fiction Talk on your favorite podcasting platform so that you don't miss out on a single episode. I've been putting together some wonderful guests and some great topics coming up in the next few months, and you are not going to want to miss a single episode. I'm serious. I am so excited to talk to these authors I have coming on. You're not going to want to miss a single interview coming up, so be sure that you are getting notified that these podcasts are going live. I'll do my best to keep you updated through social media. And again, if you aren't connected to Christian Historical Fiction Talk on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, make sure that you find us there and follow us there as well, because that's a great way to stay connected with us also. Because you know if it's happening in the world of Christian Historical Fiction, we're talking about it here. So that's out of the way, and we can go ahead and get started with our guest. We'll let her introduce herself and tell you a little bit about herself, but she's had a very interesting career leading up to when she became an author back in 2011. She's always loved to read, has a real heart for research and a love for history. She's passionate about fiercely intelligent people and loves to create amazing characters. Her books are fabulous, and I'm sure you're going to love her. Please help me welcome Elizabeth Camden to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Why don't we start off with having you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, sure. I live in Orlando, Florida with my husband. By trade, I am a librarian. I got married pretty late in life, so no kids. My work was always really important to me. I was always very career-focused. I got to work in some of the biggest and the smallest college libraries in the United States. And then when I was 35, I met my husband. And everything kind of changed after that. (laughs) Um, Like I said, I was always very career-focused, and that didn't change. Um, He was always very supportive of my jobs, but he also encouraged me to start writing. And I, I always, I never really thought of that as a possibility before, but he thought that I would be good. And so I, I used that to start writing that inspiration. I wrote five failed manuscripts before my sixth manuscript hit. And so my first novel got published in 2011 and I've been writing ever since. So was it your husband who got you interested in writing or kind of had you always had that in the back of your mind that that might be something you wanted to do? Not, well, as part of my job for being a college librarian, I had to get tenure. So I was writing nonfiction. I wrote several nonfiction books under my maiden name and several really dry, dreadful academic articles. I mean, they will put you to sleep. But that's what you have to do to get tenure. And I always thought, well, after I got tenure, I thought, I can write whatever I want now. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to write a novel? And so I started writing a novel right after I got tenure. My husband was really my my only cheerleader. I didn't tell anybody I was doing it because I was kind of embarrassed, you know? I 
after writing these scholarly tomes, all of a sudden I was trying, you know, to write a romance novel. And let me tell you, on a college campus, romance novels do not get much respect. So, <laughs> but he was my cheerleader. And like I said, it was, it was much harder than I thought. I went into it somewhat arrogant because I never had problems getting my nonfiction published. I didn't realize how much harder it was going to be to publish a novel. And those five failed manuscripts that I wrote, they're still under my bed and they will probably never see the light of day because they really were not ready for prime time. But uh, yeah, I've always loved reading, but I never really thought about writing a novel until I was an adult. Now you're an academic librarian. What is that and why did you pick academia to be a librarian? Well, to be a college librarian, you have to have a master's degree in library science. And then most college librarians have a second master's in a subject area because we teach. We teach students how to do research in medieval literature or how to do research in business to be a marketing expert. And so I was a business librarian and I would work with the MBA students. And I know that when people hear the word business librarian, their eyes kind of glaze over. But I love being a business librarian. It is a discipline that involves a little bit of everything. Culture, finance, psychology, history, marketability. And so I would work with a team of students who would be either developing a product or an advertising campaign, and we would have to pull apart the product and break it down into component parts. Like, for example, if the topic was, how can we market Hot Pockets in India? That sounds like, oh, okay, I'll do a paper on that. No, that's a huge chapter level proposal because you have to research things like, what are the culinary preferences in India? You know, are they vegetarian? Do they like spicy food? Are they lactose intolerant? You have to know, What percentage of the population has microwaves and freezers? You have to know what percentage of the population has two people working in the household because who buys Hot Pockets? It's people who don't have time to cook or college students. So you you make this huge list of questions about everything that goes into that product. And then you research it. And the students have no idea how to do research other than Google. Right. And so my job as a librarian is to teach them what kind of research reports are out there, how to pull the part uh, the topic apart and then how to go find those answers. And like I said, it's a little psychology. It's a lot of culture, a lot of finance, like what is economically feasible. And um, I loved it. I loved being a librarian. I should say that I'm not a librarian anymore. I was a librarian for 25 years, but a couple years ago, it just between the writing and being a librarian, I could not quite keep all the balls in the air anymore. And I remember I knew for about a year before I resigned that I was going to be leaving. And that was one of the most difficult years of my career because I thought, throughout the entire year on a college campus, life is very, it's, it's on a schedule. It has a rhythm. And the entire year I kept thinking, this is my last orientation. 
this is my last Christmas break. This is my last annual report or my last database review. And the entire year was just like a year of mourning. (laughs) I remember (laughs) telling my husband, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't think of myself as a librarian anymore. And he was like, are you insane? You know, this, you're going to be living the dream. You get to be a full-time writer. And I came to the conclusion that, you know, in order to pursue one dream, sometimes you have to let go of another because I loved being a librarian and certain careers. I don't think you ever leave behind. I still think of myself as a librarian. I think former doctors or teachers, they, they think of themselves as I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher. I, I'm sure it's that way with motherhood, right? Yes. Oh, yes. It never ends. <laughs> so so that's what it was like to be a college librarian. I did love it. It's, being a librarian is a terrific job. Now, you write about the Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. What is the Gilded Age and why have you chosen to write about it? Well, Gilded Age, I think roughly like 1880 to through World War One, And I like the Gilded Age because there's a couple of reasons. It still has some of the glamour and the history that appeals to a lot of readers, but it's not alien. It's not, we, we, we have car in the Gilded Age, you've got trains, you've got telegraphs, sometimes telephones. So it, it still feels relatable to the modern reader, yet it still has the, the glamour of history. To me, because I have a business background, I very much want all my heroines to have jobs. I have no experience on a farm. I know in Christian fiction, there is a huge category of Amish and ranchers and things like that. I would fail at that. I don't know that world. I know the world of work and urban employment. And so all of my heroines, they are either scientists or journalists, photographer. I've done a couple of mathematicians. I did a botanist. And quite frankly, at the early 20th century, women were in those positions. And so that is an era that I feel like I can really excel, having women who are in interesting careers I remember once after my second book was published, my my editor came to me and said, would you be interested in doing Regency romance? Because back then, and this was eight, eight, 10 years ago, Regency romances were really big. They still are. And I thought about it for about one minute. <laughs> and then I said, no, <laughs> because I cannot do that rural house party Jane Austen heroine. I like Jane Austen movies. I could never write one of those books. I, I just, I would feel too confined. I wouldn't know how to make it interesting. So what I like about the Gilded Age is that it lets me pick a, a, a heroine who's got an interesting career. You know, maybe she is a medical researcher working in a turn of the century hospital and a doctor romance. I mean, that's kind of a classic romance, the hospital doctor nurse romance. And I can do it in the Gilded Age. I can have a a college professor heroine or a a mathematician, but I couldn't do that in Jane Austen's world. So that's what I like about the Gilded Age. 
your heroine in your latest release, A Gilded Lady, does have a very interesting career. Can you tell us about that? Okay, thanks. The A Gilded Lady is set in the White House, and it's set during the McKinley administration, which was... Oh, 1896 to the early 20th century. President McKinley had a difficult wife, Ida McKinley. And my heroine is her social secretary. And first ladies have had social secretaries all the way back. Now, social secretaries, that means you are helping the first lady plan a state dinner or welcome the senator's wives, or welcome a tour group into the White House, or plan an inaugural ball. So the social secretary has to be very well connected with Washington society. And in the case of Mrs. McKinley, she was a very difficult person in real life. And she has not gone down in history well. History has not been kind to her. I have not read a biography of either President McKinley or of some of the people surrounded him who ever had a good thing to say about her. However, when you look at her life, she was a challenged woman. She lost both of her daughters in childhood. She had epilepsy. Now, it is very hard to be in a public position when you could suffer an epileptic seizure at any moment. She had severe depression. She had migraines. And she had other difficulties that made it very difficult for her to host these grand balls and dinners. And she was bad-tempered. She had a short temper. But she and President McKinley had a very loving marriage. I mean, there is no doubt how dedicated he was to her. And his biographers will say how he tended to her. In fact, during the Spanish-American War, there are scenes where in real life, what happened was he would have the Secretary of War and the Secretary of Defense and the, the Navy would be in the White House having meetings and she would call him away to help her get into bed at night to say prayers. And there's stories about, you know, the Secretary of War just getting steamed and hot under the collar because the president would disappear for a half hour to tend to his wife at nine o'clock at night. And then the president would go back down. So in my book, A Gilded Lady, I have a character, Carolyn, who is the secretary, who is managing the first lady at the same time she is managing to fall in love with the head of the Secret Service and carry out her own family dramas as well. Was it a challenge to write around real-life people? Not really, because I had such an interesting first lady. And what I decided to do, I try not to go for the obvious. The obvious would be to have my heroine resent the first lady, just like everybody else in the White House did. But I thought, wait a second, my heroine is smart. She also doesn't have a mother. She lost her mother in childhood. Mrs. McKinley lost her daughters when they were young. And so I decided to have a mother-daughter relationship between these two women. And just like most mother-daughters, they bicker, they laugh, they argue. And so I had a very loving relationship between these two women. That was just how I chose to portray her because for a man as charismatic as William McKinley to be in love with her, 
Ida McKinley had to be an extraordinary woman. She had something. The people around her didn't see it, but my heroine, Carolyn, does. And so those were the parameters I had. And then I had a couple of major historical events. I don't want to go into spoiler territory, but McKinley was a very popular president and everything was going his way. And then midway through his second term, a wrench was thrown into it. And that is the wrench. It was a real historical event and it upends the entire White House and it upends my hero and heroine's life. And then the last half of the book is how they deal with this immense historical tragedy. And so I have parameters that I have to work around, but mostly when I write a novel, I want to write an inspiring novel that has a great love story in it. And I want it to have a lot of inspiration. My novels fall within Christian fiction. I am probably a little more subtle than most with my message. A Gilded Lady, I think, has some more overt Christian messaging in it than most of my books, just because of the nature of what happens in the book. But I I enjoy weaving in some how faith in the Bible can strengthen us in our, our darkest moments. The research for this book must have been so detailed and so complicated because as I'm reading this, you have all the goings on at the White House and then this long train trip that they're on, as well as like you said, this historical bombshell that is coming. Plus, you also have the hero who is head of the Secret Service and all of that as well. Tell us a little bit about how you went about researching this book. I read a lot of biographies of the McKinley administration. I read a a biography of, believe it or not, at this point in history, the Secret Service answered to the Treasury Department. And so I read a lot about the Treasury Department and the history of the Secret Service and what their challenges were in keeping the president safe. A big thing in the book, which happened in real life, was McKinley's second inauguration or his second election was closer than expected. Because he was so popular, he expected to waltz into a second term. Well, it was closer than expected. And so he thought, I have got to shore up the country behind me. So he took a train tour from coast to coast, all the way down to New Orleans, through Texas, all the way to California and back. And so I thought, this will be great. I'll get the characters out of Washington and do a road trip. I read about, I read a lot of biographies that dealt with that train trip. But quite frankly, I set so many of my books in Gilded Age, Washington, D.C. The research wasn't all that difficult. I enjoy reading books about Washington. I, one of the reasons I set so many of my novels in Washington is, well, Washington has always hired women in professional capacities dating back to the Civil War. During the Civil War, you had so many men who went off to the war and their jobs needed to be filled, office jobs, whether they were working clerical work, but laboratory work. In professional capacities, they had women in those positions all the way back to the 1860s. When the Civil War was over and the men came home, 
those women never left. This was unlike World War II, where Rosie the Riveter went back home. That didn't happen after the Civil War because the government was growing by leaps and bounds. It was doubling and tripling in size during the 1870s and 80s. So they needed experienced bodies in those jobs. So Washington has always given me a great opportunity to have women in interesting historical roles. The Gilded Lady is the second book in a trilogy. It does read perfectly well on its own. But the first book in the trilogy features a woman who works as a botanist at the Smithsonian. And then the third book in the trilogy that comes out in February of 2021 deals with a photographer for the Department of the Interior. She's a woman, obviously. So I love books set in Washington, D.C., because, like I said, there are women up and down in interesting positions there. That's really interesting. So tell us a little bit about this book that's due out in February. Oh, The Prince of Spies comes out in February, and it is a book that has generated more questions than all my previous books combined because of the hero. The hero, Luke, has appeared as a prominent character in both the first and the second book, and people love him, and they can't figure him out, and I knew I had to deliver in the third book because people have been waiting for Luke's book because there are so many dangling threads about who Luke is, and I had a great time writing A Prince of Spies. Luke, again, not to give too many too many giveaways, but it's a Romeo and Juliet type story where Luke has one enemy in his life, and it's a congressman. And uh, Luke will fall in love with the congressman's daughter in book three. And so it's a great story, a generational family conflict that ends in a wonderful romance. That was one of the funnest books I've ever had to write. And that one's coming out in February and that will finish off the trilogy. And I have to say, I was very sorry to finish this trilogy. Each book was pretty easy for me to write and I've enjoyed it. And it definitely comes through. They're a lot of fun to read and we will be looking for the Prince of Spies coming up. What are the best parts about writing and the worst parts about writing in your mind? Oh my, I, I love everything about it. Gosh, it's a privilege to do this. My first five manuscripts failed. They are still under my bed. Those five or six years were very hard. I dealt with disappointment and monthly because with each manuscript, I thought it was good. I thought this is the one that's going to get published. And then the rejection letters would come in. And when you spend a year on a book, and you spend your free time crafting it and researching it and honing it, and you love these characters, and then you just get rejection after rejection. I think I got, I racked up over 150 rejections before my first book, which is was called The Lady of Bolton Hill, got published. Each one of those books were hard. Each one of those rejections hurt. And then, so, so, the, the tough part is kind of behind me. I am grateful for those five rejected manuscripts because it taught me to be a better writer. Looking back on them, they were not ready. It forced me to up my game. 
if my first manuscript had gotten published, I think I might not have worked so hard. Every manuscript I work on, I work, I, I really sweat bullets over them, but I love it. I love the research. I love crafting the storylines. I love a good romance. I'll say that right there. I love a good romance. I'm not ashamed to admit it. If I had to describe my writing to somebody who didn't know me, I'd say that I am Charles Dickens meets Danielle Steele because I like, <laughs> I like a good family drama with lots of layers of history and some characters lurking in the background ready to upend your, your hero, but I want a good romance in it. My novels always have happy endings. I got burned by Danielle Steele a couple of times. <laughs> I have to tell you. And so I, I love a good romance. And I, uh, I love hearing from readers. I love interacting with readers on Facebook. And uh, so, so I still, when you get a bad review, which of course happens, quite frankly, if you don't get bad reviews, that you're not writing very interesting novels. My books certainly garner plenty of bad reviews, but mostly good ones. Bad reviews hurt. I, I have been told I shouldn't read them, but I do. But it comes with the territory. So that's my answer, I'd say. Any last words that you would have for the listeners? Well, I would say keep reading. Christian fiction has been a wonderful outlet, especially in this last year, for reading books that have hope and optimism in there. You know, in A Gilded Lady, the biblical theme that I drew on throughout that book was the passages from Ecclesiastes that, that I think we all know. There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. That theme comes up. And in fact, I say that over and over in the book because they are going through a season of challenges in the book. And they know if they can just get through them, that there will be a time to laugh and a time to dance. And so <laughs> I wrote this book two years ago, way before COVID <laughs> came into our lives. Who could have imagined this? We're going through a difficult season. You know, my dad died a couple of months ago, not from COVID, but I haven't, I didn't get to see him until he was in the hospital during those last couple of days. I, I was not allowed to see him. This was a terrible time, but we're going to come through it and we'll move into to a new season coming up. Coming up soon, I hope. Um, those are my final words to folks, just to hang in there. This is not abnormal. Ecclesiastes was written 2,000 years ago, right? And right. And he didn't know. He was frustrated and afraid. Yes. So I guess those are my words of wisdom. Well, thank you so much. Your novels certainly do fill us with hope. You have our sympathies on the passing of your father, but thank you for your wonderful stories. And we're going to be looking forward to what's coming from you in the future. Thank you. It's been great to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate having a chance to speak with you. That's just about all the time we have for today. Thank you so much once again to Elizabeth Camden for joining us. It was such an honor and a privilege to get to speak with her and to talk to her. 
If you would like more information about Elizabeth or about her books, make sure that you visit the podcast's website, which is christianhistoricalfiction.buzzsprout.com. And you can find all kinds of information there and some links to be able to buy her books. Also, while you're on the internet, I would love it if you would take a few minutes and look me up at LizTolsma.com. You can find out more there about some of my latest releases and what's coming up from me. Now, as I said in the introduction, we have a lot of great authors coming up for chats. You Usually, I like to go back and forth between a topic and an author chat, but the way it just worked out this time, we're going to have two back-to-back author chats, and our guest next time is going to be the incredible Laura France. She's going to be here talking about her latest release, Tidewater Bride. I'm so excited to share that with you. So as I said in the beginning, if you have not subscribed to Christian Historical Fiction Talk on your favorite podcasting site, make sure to do so so that you know when the interview with Laura France goes live, because I assure you, you are not going to want to miss it. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining me, and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.